This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. You could open your Bibles up to John's account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the fifth chapter will be in today, beginning of the fifth chapter. John chapter 5. Before we get started, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine, a couple that we met in one of the other churches. Their names are Paul and Celeste. And um, Paul and Celeste are genuine believers, which will become significant as we look at this passage today. But Paul, when I first met him, uh, just a great young guy, had a couple of young kids And he was experiencing, had met with God and really felt like the Lord had planted in him a desire to serve in full-time ministry. And so as I got to know him over the years, we just began to evaluate, assess his call as he called to ministry. And in order to do that, he wanted to go to the pastor's college. So uh, he also felt called of the Lord to save all the money, the $50,000 that he needed to go to the pastor's college. And so he began to put Dave Ramsey to shame, basically. He saved every penny, just $1,000 after $1,000. His family of four lived on a very frugal amount of money so that he could put money away and pay his own way to the pastor's college so the church didn't have to fund it. In the midst of that, because of a significant family problem, he and his wife met with the Lord again and decided to adopt four children at one time from another family member who is experiencing significant difficulty. Twin newborns and two older boys came into their house. So now their house went from four to eight. They're still living very frugally, putting the money away. And then the Lord met with them again. And the Lord, as we were in the midst of a building program in this other church, spoke to him and said, I want you to take all that money you've saved for pastor's college and give it to the building fund. And I'll never forget the day that I met with him. It was just a holy moment meeting with this true believer as I watched these acts play out in his life of God coming and meeting with him. And he just joyfully gave that money that he had saved for the pastor's college. Let's read John chapter 5. We're going to read another story that is also quite true. Beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been here a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, after this, we don't know exactly how long one of the feasts is happening. It doesn't specify which feast it was, but it was one of the feasts of the Jews. So many people obviously were coming to Jerusalem for the feast. This is the beginning of what some theologians call the festival cycle in John's account of the gospel. And I would like for us to do a little literary analysis this morning. Any English majors in the crowd, please forgive me because I'm sure this will not be correct literary analysis, but we're going to do my version of literary analysis here. It's a short four-act play that the Lord, through John, is presenting to us this morning. Here is the setting. There's a lot of detail given about the setting. John wants us to see the scene very clearly. Now, use your imagination. We're in Jerusalem, the city where all the pilgrims are coming for this feast. We're by the Sheep Gate. Okay, The Sheep Gate was one of the gates into the city near the temple complex. We're at this big, this is a large double pool complex, very large Olympic-sized pools, apparently. There were large pools here at the Pool of Bethesda, which means the House of Mercy. And we have these five roofed colonnades, kind of open-air pavilions that are covered, probably to protect from the sun. And then we have this multitude of invalids. Now, you can imagine, if any of you have ever been to a hospital that is run by an organization that doesn't care about the patients there, what this place smelled like and sounded like and looked like. Here's what Kent Hughes says. He wants us to help us imagine. What a pitiful crowd of broken humanity. It doesn't take much imagination to see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, and to sense the pathos of young and old among that impotent, suffering humanity. It had to be a horrible, distressing sight. So in this crowd, here's the setting, one man, you can see the camera zooming in, catches Jesus' attention. In all the multitude, one man. So here are the characters in our four-act play. We have the multitude, the teeming multitude, all of these sick people, who are outside the temple complex. We have this one singled out invalid. We don't know his name. He's just a man who's there. We have Jesus, our hero in the the story. He's always our hero. And then we have the Jews. 
Those are the four groups or individuals that are characters. And here's the Reader's Digest version of the plot. A man seemingly chosen at random by Jesus, we don't know whether he rolled the dice or what he did, walks to, walks, or is healed, healed by Jesus, walks with his bed, he gets yelled at by the Jews, he blame shifts, this man told me to do it, he's confronted by Jesus, he goes away and tells the Jews who then increase their persecution of Jesus. The end. This story is quite remarkable for all the things that are not said. We're left with a lot of perplexing questions based on this story that John intentionally allows to go unanswered. And that's significant. So at, at, a, at the level of looking into this drama, here are some of the questions that we might feel would be raised. Why does Jesus choose this man among all the multitude? Does, he, does this man believe and does he become a follower of Jesus? Is it possible to know from this story that he's now a follower of Jesus? Why does Jesus tell him to sin no more lest something worse happen? Did his sin cause his condition? Do we know? Can we tell? Are sin and illness linked? Is this a place where we could teach that sin and illness always go together? If there's illness, it means there's sin. Is the man completely healed and whole and saved from his sin? And finally, and there are hundreds of other questions. Where did he go? Jesus told him to walk. Where did he go? Where did he end up going? Did he have a home after 38 years to go to? And then there are, as we take a step back and kind of do the 30,000 foot level, there are questions that arise when we consider the whole gospel of John. Why is this story right here of all the things that John chose to write about? And he said at the end, remember, there are many other things that Jesus did, but I chose to write about these few. Why did he choose this story? What, why this man? What does he want us to see? Why did he include this story at this point in his accounting of Jesus' life and ministry. And as I read through numbers of commentaries this week about this particular passage, there are amazingly different opinions about the answers to all of these questions. And I always love that when that happens because I figure if none of these guys that are brilliant scholars can agree on this, it doesn't really matter what I say. No, that's not true. That is not true. We need to remember John's stated purpose in writing the gospel and writing his story about John. Let's go back to John 20 again. You don't need to turn there. Craig's mentioned this several times. John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. So here's one of his signs that he did. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, including this one, are written for two reasons. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I think this story in particular was chosen by John. You ever seen a negative image? Seen the picture? And you ever see in a dark room, those of you that are photographers, you've seen the negative. Everything's reversed. I think this story was chosen by John as a negative example, as a contrast to some of the things we've seen so far, because John wants us to see very clearly that genuine believers always pursue Jesus. They always pursue the one who is sent to seek and save the lost. Genuine believers always pursue the one who is sent to seek and save the lost. Okay, so let's look in more detail at the four acts in this four-act play. Act 1. 
at the sheep gate by the pool of Bethesda, which, as I said, means house of mercy. Jesus chooses to come here. He could have come in many of the other gates. This is actually somewhat of an unusual gate for him. If he came through here and he's in this particular place, he comes to see the multitude. There's no reference to the disciples being with them. We don't know whether they were or not, because John, again, is silent on that. He's silent on a lot of things in this particular story. He chooses to come here. He looks at the multitude. He sees and smells all the things that Kent Hughes was trying to get us to imagine. And then he sees this one man in particular in the midst of all the suffering. Now, again, you can imagine this huge complex, big, big pools, large area, many people, five large roofed colonnades, which they've now found. Uh, archaeologists have found them two stories below. There's been a, a church built on top of this and a mosque built on top of this, but they've excavated and they found This story is true. There really were these pools there. It's great. So Jesus, our first character, our hero, knowing that this man had been here a long time, he asks this question, do you want, and that word means want, desire, do you have the will to be healed? He looks at him. He knows he's been here for 38 years, or at least he's been ill. We don't know exactly how long he's been here at the pool. The man responds this way. I have no one when the water is stirred, when I'm going down there and trying to get there, another steps in front of me and gets there first. Now, there was a legend, and actually some versions of the Bible inaccurately have included that other verse where it talks about the angels stirring the water, and there were some later manuscripts where they tried to explain verse 7. Why did this man think that when the water was stirred, something was going to happen? Well, there was apparently a, a legend at that time that an angel of the Lord would come down and somehow stir the water. And if you were the first one to jump in when that happened, you were going to be healed. So maybe somebody was healed at some point, or maybe somebody said that somebody was healed at some point. But anyway, this multitude is gathering around, and and from time to time, for whatever reason, whether there really was an angel, whether it was the springs bubbling up from the bottom, whether it was the wind, whether it was God blowing on the pool, we don't know. From time to time, apparently, there was this stirring, and so people came to understand and believe, even to the point that some later scribes writing down copies of the Bible added those extra verses in about the angel stirring. That is not in the original. So if your Bible has that, there's probably a footnote. There's a footnote in your ESV Bible about that verse, which shouldn't be there, according to the the earliest, best manuscripts that we have. But in any event, this man believes that there's something about this, that that if the water gets stirred, I need to get to the pool. But he says to Jesus, I have nobody to carry me. I have nobody to take me and put me in the water. So he doesn't answer his question, does he? He doesn't answer the question, do you want to be healed? He basically says it's impossible. We don't really know whether he wants to be healed or not. He may be having a very good living there as a beggar, some of the commentators said. So he may not really want to be healed. We don't know because he doesn't answer. Jesus then says this to him. Three commands. Get up, take up your bed, which was probably a straw mat, like a sleeping bag of that day, and walk. Three commands. And note what happens in in the verses there. If you look carefully, it says, here's the order. The man was instantly healed, and then he obeyed. So the work of God hit him first. God, in his power, healed this man. And as he experienced that healing, he obeyed these three commands that Jesus gave him. Get up, roll up your bed, put it on his shoulder, and walk. And that is the end 
of scene two. So there, again, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Walk where? Where am I supposed to go? He doesn't, we don't know that he asked that question because John doesn't record that. We begin to see here that as Jesus gives him no further instructions, maybe Jesus wants to see what's he going to do. Where's this man going to go? Again, John makes no comment. John's silence is significant. What he chooses to comment on and not comment on here is important. We begin to see, again, the use of the negative image here. Unlike Andrew. Now, you remember Andrew? Andrew heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, and he took off after Jesus. He pursued Jesus until Jesus finally turned around and said, What are you seeking? Where are you staying? And the next thing we hear about Andrew, he's going to his brother saying, we found the Messiah. Okay, He's a pursuer. He's a true believer. He's then also, what about Nathaniel? Nathaniel saw one very minor miracle where Jesus said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Before, how do you know me? Before you came, I saw you under the tree. So he had a word of knowledge he knew about Nathaniel. Nathaniel, based on that one thing, said, you are the Christ. You are the King of Israel. He was a true believer and he followed him from that point forward. He followed this one that he came to know as God, as Messiah. And he had life in his name. What about the woman at the well? She went back and as Jesus revealed her life to her and she perceived that he was a prophet and then she started talking to him about the Messiah and Jesus very boldly says to her, I am the Messiah. She goes back. She tells her whole town to the point that they're all coming out. The harvest field is moving toward the harvester, as we heard from Craig. Or what about the man we heard about last week who came to Jesus and said, my son, he heard that Jesus had come back to Cana and he said, my son is sick. I'm going. I'm going to pursue Jesus. Jesus, my son is dying. Please come. Jesus said, unless you people see signs, you won't believe challenges all of them and the man says i'm desperate my son is dying he presses in he pursues jesus and the story is that he believed the word of jesus when jesus said go at a distance i heal your son he'll be healed and he found out the next day that at that very moment that jesus spoke just as in creation he created a healing in his son's life and he led his entire household then to believe in this one so in all those places, we have statements that John makes. Listen to what he's saying. He, he, he clearly says that the people have come to know, as he says at the end of the book, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, they appear to have life. They're following. Something's happening. Not so here. This man hears these commands. He obeys the commands. But then the very next thing we hear is that Jesus slipped away. So let's move on to act Jesus disappears from view and we have now this significant interchange between the man and the Jews. So the Jews see the man walking, maybe whistling, maybe he's testing out his new legs which haven't worked for 38 years. He might be jumping up and down. We have no idea because John doesn't tell us the way that he tells us in other stories. And they say this to him, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. Now, that was not even true. There is no law that prohibits in the scripture taking up your bed and calling that work and carrying it from where you've been for however many years back to your house, if it even is still there. 
There's no law. This is an extra law. The Jews had created, the Pharisees, the scribes, all the others had created 39 sets of regulations about what constituted work, and this was one of them. No carrying of the bed on the Sabbath. But the Lord never said that. So this is their command. It's unlawful for you to take up your bed and carry it on the Sabbath. Now, instantaneously, the man says, he told me to do it. Have your kids ever said, he told me to do it? Mom, why are you, what, what are you doing with that cookie? Daddy told me that I could have it. So now mom and dad are going to fight. So what this man is trying to do is create a fight, potentially. He's, basically, he's just trying to escape. Probably, now again, there's nothing in Scripture that would prohibit this man as a cripple from being in the temple, but there were many traditions of the elders that would have prohibited him from being in the temple. No one was permitted to be a priest if he had this type of an affliction. But the man, according to Scripture, could have gone into the temple, but in all probability, he had been convinced, as many others had been, by these leaders that it was not good for him to be in the temple. So probably he had been excluded. And here, the very first thing that happens to him after he is healed by Jesus and he's walking around breaking their Sabbath rules with his mat on his shoulder because Jesus told him to do it, is he's looking at now going, okay, I finally get to go to the temple and now they're going to boot me out. This is not an insignificant confrontation that he's having. This man has been an outcast for 38 years, a despised one, sleeping among the filth and the stench and the smells and living by people coming and throwing coins at him. This is not an insignificant, almost appears comical if it weren't so tragic. Here's what the Jews asked. Now listen very carefully to this. Here's their question. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So there's two observations I want you to pay attention to. First one is this. See how the Jews are more focused on their rules than they are on what just happened. They're more focused on their works than the miraculous work of God. The man said two things. He said, the man who healed me told me to do this. And instead of them asking, who healed you? They weren't concerned about that. They didn't want to know. They, what they wanted to know was, who told you to break our rules? You are bad. They're legalists. They're predisposed to look for those who are not living life according to their standards and to judge them and to exclude them. This is what the, the spirit of legalism does, that Jesus has come to set us free from. They're consumed with their own rules and their own work. Second one, second observation. The man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This is probably the most tragic statement in this entire story. He didn't know who it was. Having just been dramatically healed of an affliction that had lasted 38 years, by a man who had singled him out from hundreds, thousands of people and said, do you want to be healed? Uh, I don't have anybody to. Put me in the pool. Get up. Take up your bed. Go home. The power of God invades his body. He's walking. He hasn't asked any questions. Where should I go? What should I do? Who are you? All of these things. His answer to the, to the Jews, I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. Compare that to Andrew. 
Brother Peter, we found the Messiah. I know who he is. Who is this man? He should have asked, who healed me and commanded me to get up and take up my bed and walk. And then I was able to do that after 38 years. Who is this? Although I wasn't there, that the wind and the storms obey him. Who is this man that speaks a word and a man and a son in a different town is healed instantly? Who is this that just spoke to me? And I was enabled by his power, by some power outside of me to obey what he told me to do. I couldn't have done it two minutes before that. Remember why John writes, I write these things so that you, my readers, might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he's writing this story. Act 3. Jesus reappears. Jesus disappeared. Jesus reappears. Afterward, after his encounter with the Jews, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That's the end of Act 3. Just that one statement from Jesus. What do we learn from this encounter in the third act? First of all, Jesus is persistent in his mission. He never quits. He doesn't stop. He's after this man. He wants to, to press this man to experiencing something more than physical healing. There's more that's needed. The reason I don't believe that this man is a believer, is a true believer, that he's a, a counterfeit, is found right in the statement of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't speak to believers this way. He doesn't say any longer to those of us that believe, sin no more. He does say that. Sin no more. Be sanctified. Be being made holy. Be being saved. He says all of that. But he never says to us, lest something worse happen to you. Because the something worse has been dealt with for a believer. So I don't believe this man yet is a follower, is a believer. I believe he's a negative image. Now, we'll end up not knowing what happens to him. But I think at this point, that's why it's important. Second thing we learn from this act is that this man is a sinner. And basically, we could all say, welcome to the club. We're all sinners. He's a sinner because Jesus says sin no more. So clearly, there's been sin in his past. He tells him to sin no more. Perhaps... His sickness resulted directly from his sin. We don't know that because John doesn't comment on that. So to take this scripture and teach that our sin leads to sickness would be inappropriate. We don't know. We don't want to preach from silence here or speak to people's experiences from silence in the scripture. We do know that this man has now, from Jesus, received four direct commands. Get up. He obeyed that one. Take up your bed, which we learned that he, he obeyed that one, and walk, and now sin no more. He's also received a warning, lest something worse happen to you. Okay? We are left, after knowing that he obeyed the three, not knowing. Again, John is silent. He doesn't tell us whether this man stopped sinning. We can surmise probably. If he's like any of us, that he probably did keep sinning. Okay? We don't know whether he ultimately followed Jesus. We don't know whether uh, when the, the church was birthed 
in the book of Acts. And going forward, this man became one of the followers. Whether he believed in Jesus before the crucifixion, we don't know what happened to this man. John is silent. So we're left wondering. And I think the question we would have to answer is, what would we do? What would you do if Jesus came, if Jesus invaded your world, which he has, if we look carefully, he's invaded all of our worlds. He keeps our hearts beating miraculously every day. He gives us air to breathe. He protects us from the kinds of disasters that could be happening every moment of every day as Japan is experiencing right now. We, we have no idea how many miracles are going on every second of every day. We, have, we need to be asking the question, why am I protected? Why am I singled out as somebody that God's favor has been showered on? And all these other people are not. Some, one of the questions this man should have asked. So what would you do if Jesus came to you and, and uttered this fourth command, go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you? A command and a warning. Act 4. Here's the double tragedy. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So now we have the Jews entering into the tragedy. The man, whether intentionally, inadvertently, whatever, betrays Jesus, perhaps a foreshadowing of another who would betray Jesus in the near future, one of his own followers, Jesus, or Judas. And then we have the tragedy of the Jews, who instead of looking at the possibility that this man who healed somebody for, after 38 years of illness could be somebody special, might be worth checking out. Maybe all the things we've been studying all these years, except for the fact that we've gotten so embroiled in our own commentary on what God actually said, that we're missing the truth. Could this be the Messiah? The very question that the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman had asked. Could this be the Messiah? Worth finding the answer to that question. Instead of doing what he had done, where he went away, hear that, he went away. Jesus said, go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. He went away. Instead of asking, why was I crippled for so many years? Was it my sin that caused my infirmity? How, why did I have to suffer for so long? Why did you single me out from all the rest? Where should I go now, Jesus? Where should I walk? What should I do? Tell me more about my sin. I don't want anything worse than 38 years of paralysis or infirmity to happen to me. That puts the fear of God in me. Tell me what to do. And most importantly, who are you? Most important question in all of human history, who is this man? Who are you? Who do you say, Jesus ultimately said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? All of history hinges on the answer to that question. And this man apparently, from what John doesn't write, didn't ask. But instead he went away and told the Jews, it was this man who told me to do what you told me not to do. John leaves us wondering about this man. We don't know what happened to him. We have no comment. Unlike the woman at the well or the father whose son was dying that Jesus healed with a word, we're left without any kind of affirming comment from John about this man. He doesn't say, 
and he went and followed Jesus. And he left all and followed Jesus. And he picked up his mat and followed Jesus. And he believed, and he and all his household. And the entire, she went and preached the whole town, and they're saying, we don't just now believe because of your word, we also have heard him. We agree with you, this is the Messiah. Okay, we don't have those kinds of affirming comments. We have silence. And John's silence is deafening here. And we would do very well to listen carefully. Genuine believers always pursue Jesus. Genuine believers always pursue Jesus. This one who was sent to seek and save the lost. John wants us to see clearly the difference between true saving faith and the pseudo-faith that believes for the moment and then walks away. When the trials of life call more loudly, when the Jews say, who told you to do this? And the fear of man calls more loudly and we want to shirk away and remove ourselves, distance ourselves from this one who came to seek and save the lost. Perhaps we see in this man a picture of what it means to believe and receive as in the parable of the soils. And even with joy, can you can imagine this guy, probably there was at least some element of joy in being able to stand up and walk for the first time in 38 years. Receiving this word with joy, and yet it, it appears that perhaps when the trials came, there was no life and it withered. So we see that as Jesus talks about that in the parable of the seeds or the soils. The most important question today is not whether this man ultimately became a believer. We'll know one day. I hope we do. I I, I was praying this morning and I just felt like uh, the Lord wanted me to be aware that because he came to seek this man, we'll probably see this man, but not based on this encounter. We'll probably meet him one day and find out the end of his story. I hope that's true, but we don't know from what the Lord has written here. So the most important question is not about him, it's about us. Are we by faith pursuing the one who came to seek and save the lost? All of us, just like this man in this story, every one of us is unable to fix his own problems. Just as the man was unable and said, I have no one, I can't do it, somebody else get down there ahead of me, he had all the excuses in the world. All of us, ultimately, would have to make the same response to Jesus when he says, have you, would you desire to go and sin no more? We would, if we're truthful, have to say, I tried it and I can't do it. Everyone in this room. The son was sent by the father to shatter the illusion that there's some self-help book out there. There's somebody who can help me to do what is good, do what is right, do what is going to be beneficial to me, do, it, do what's going to open up all of... The, the riches of the universe to me. Somebody can tell me. I, I can certainly find someone. We don't want to have to say, I have no one. I've tried it. And I am bankrupt. We don't want to have to say that. The man said it about his physical healing. The Lord wants us to see that with regard to our spiritual healing. When he says to us, go and sin no more, he wants to get us to the place lest something worse happen to you. The purpose of that command is to point to the one who did that, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death so that all of our sins, instead of being paid for by us, instead of us trying to walk out that command ourselves, 
we can look to this one who did it, who did ultimately what God had called him to do. Only through his finished work and only through his power coming into us, just as it came into the man, he experienced the power of God in healing and then he obeyed. Only in that order are we able to fulfill, go and sin no more because I've got better things for you to do than sin as believers. So in response to his pursuit of us, remember, he's the initiator in all of these stories. He comes, we respond. But our response is critical. He comes, we respond with repentance and faith, with joy and with seeking him, seeking life and power, seeking after him, always pursuing him because genuine believers always, always pursue Jesus, this one who is sent to seek and save the lost. So where do you see yourself today in this drama? We should always ask that question. Where am I in the crowd? Am I the one that's standing up for Jesus like a future healing we're going to read about in John 9 where the man born blind is healed and he ends up standing with Jesus against the Jews, not this man. Are we like this man? Are we focused on our problems? Are we tired? Are we just blame shifting? Are we, it's because of this, because of this, because of this that I can't do what you want me to do? Are we avoiding his question? Do you want to be whole? Do you will to be healed spiritually? Is there faith? Are we looking for popular or mythical fixes to your finances, to your health, to your anger problem, to your parenting, to your marriages as we work through marriages? Are you looking for some... I need, I've got to find somebody who can help me. There's only one. There's only one. Are you receiving benefits? This was where I was so convicted this week. Am I receiving benefits that I'm ignoring? And so I come to this service and I come to my, my time with the Lord every morning and really I come to every minute of every day and I, instead of doing what this man should have done, remember the story of the ten lepers and only one came back to thank Jesus and worship Him? And Jesus said in that, your, your faith has healed you because you're, you're pursuing me. The other nine, we don't know. They were healed physically. But were they made whole? We don't know because there's no comment on the rest of them. There is a comment on the one that came back. What this man should have done was gone to Jesus and said, I'm not letting you slip away. You healed me. I'm after you. Until I find out who you are, I'm going to pursue you with all of my heart, all of my life. I'm giving myself to you. I know where I'm going to walk. I'm walking after you. Tell me what to do. Thank you. The man born blind fell down, we'll read, and worshiped Jesus when he found out who he was. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. Are you driven potentially by the fear of man rather than drawn by the love and the grace of God? Or perhaps maybe some of us are like the Jews. We're seeking to live by rules and regulations. We're seeking to create a box that God will live in. And he will do things the way that we understand him to be. And, and we don't want him to do things different. We are just content with the little rut that we've built. And if God wants to come and invade our world and change it, we're like, please no. I'm safe here. Maybe we're like them. Maybe we're missing the voice of God which is speaking all the time as we'll hear at the end of this chapter, end of this section. My Father is always working. Always working. Right now. He's speaking. Right now. He has things for you to notice. He has questions for you to ask. And He has answers that He will give to those that pursue Him.
So for the genuine believers, those of us in this room that are genuine believers, this story reminds us that Jesus will, just like my friends Paul and Celeste, he'll meet us again and again. And as he meets us, he'll have new things to ask us to do. But he'll never say, lest something worse happen to you. Because the something worse was paid for by him. But he's got good works prepared for us to do. And we need to be listening. We need to be pursuing with all of our heart. Lord, I don't hear your voice. And I'm going to run after you until I hear it again. The last act, and I'm sure there have been many more since. This this was a number of years ago. But I want to share with you about the story of Paul and Celeste. Celeste was a woman who had two very well-behaved gentle, kind, easy to get along with children, and then she adopted four that didn't necessarily always fit into that category. She also suffered from chronic headaches, one of the worst cases I've ever seen, where she would be in bed for days at a time, couldn't move, couldn't look at the light. She's now a mother of six children, four of whom have just been adopted, two of them older who have come out of a difficult situation. And one day as I was praying for the care group leaders in our meeting that we were going to have with them, I felt impressed by the Lord that the Lord wants to answer your request tonight. He wants people to ask Him. He wants them to ask whatever they want. Here's a promise from God. Ask me whatever you want and it will be done for you. Okay, so I just felt impressed that the Lord wanted me to go to that meeting that night. Paul and Celeste would be in the meeting and just say, you know, I believe the Lord wants uh, us to ask him for healing, for various things, and I think he's going to move here. And it was another holy moment, because I I raised that question with the full expectation that Celeste would say, oh, would you please pray for my headaches? They've tried everything, every medication. they, They just will not go away. And instead, she looked at me and she said, I just want to pray that the Lord would give me the strength to endure with joy whatever he asked me. Like Johnny last week, it's just a reminder that there's so much more in my life. Because I wouldn't have said that. I would have said, Lord, the drugs aren't working. Please heal me. That would have been my request. And it would have been a legitimate request. But there's a better request. Lord, first of all, Have your way and give me joy. Let me obey your command to be joyful always. That's how she was thinking. Genuine believers always pursue Jesus, the one sent to seek and save the lost. And for those of us here, and I'll not presume anything, because I don't know your hearts, who have not yet believed, or if you're not sure, that you've received what Peter calls a genuine faith, a tested, genuine faith in the Lord. Here's the gospel for you. It's not by mistake that John bookends this drama with these two scenes. Initially, he's by the sheep gate. These pools are by the sheep gate. The sheep gate, according to historians, was the gate that the sheep came in and they never came back out. Because they were going to the temple to to be sacrificed. So the sheep came through the sheep gate And they didn't come back out. So it's not by mistake that Jesus is right here. Because this is where he seals his death warrant with this man. He comes and he heals this man who will then, he knows, betray him to the Jews. Say, this was the one. Just like the same thing would happen with his disciple Judas. Who he chose. He washed his feet. He loved him. He took sweet counsel together with him. And then that one turned him over. 
Ultimately, here's what Jesus says to the Jews. My father is always at his work, and I too am working. He called himself for them, just as Nathaniel had called him the Son of God. He's now calling himself the Son of God, and that was what sealed his death right there. So he came through the sheep gate, just like those sheep that had foreshadowed for many centuries his work on the cross. He came through, and even though this wasn't the time yet, he signed his own death warrant and said, you know what? No longer will you be able to say, I have no one. I have no one to help me obey the command. Go and sin no more. Someone did that for me. He carried me. It's this one who came, who wants each of you, whether you're not a believer, whether you're doubting, whether God's actually put his life into you today. He wants you to see the impossibility of obeying the command, go and sin no more. The purpose of that command is to get you to say what the man said, I have no one, so that he can become that someone who carries your burdens, everyone, who carries your sins, everyone, and who wants to hear you say, yes, I want to be whole, and I need a Savior, and I have someone, his name You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.